quite a large continuation. I'm not doing three verses today. Can you believe it? Yes, Acts 1, 12 through 26 today. And let's pray. Father, we bless you for revealing your will to us in your word. And that we can commune with you and, and seek you in prayer. And we confess that we do build our lives on foundations made of sand rather than the sure word of Christ uh, oftentimes. Help us, we pray, to hear the words of Jesus and to do them. And may we who stand righteous in your sight by his life and his blood be more and more conformed to his image, uh, not through our own efforts, but through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and making us new men to to triumph over the old man and may we not seek worldly means to accomplish the mission you have given us but may we return always to the bedrock foundation of your word in jesus name we pray amen all right let's stand for the reading of the word acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 Then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. You may be seated. (coughs) 
the book of Acts is a really kind of a genre to itself within the Bible. Um, it's not an epistle. It's not a gospel, though you could say it's, it's a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Um, it, it's mostly narrative, but the narrative is comprised of so many sermons as well that there's also a lot of didactic uh, portions of the book. One of the places we can go wrong in reading Scripture is to follow and to lift up the examples of the characters of Scripture as though they were meant to be normative patterns for our lives. Um, this is especially true in the book of Acts because we have a tendency to look at the first century church as this sort of pure, innocent, uh, untainted expression of the Christian experience. And there's a sense in which that's true. It's kind of like when we look at children. Um, children have an in- innocence about them, and they have yet to be tainted by the world. Um, and, and so their expressions they emerge directly from their own nature. I mean, when Levi was born, you know, he, he, he came into the world, with, which to me seems like a violent process. And minutes later, he's nursing. He, know, he somehow knows how to nurse. Like I, I was amazed. I said, how does he know how to do that? But at the same time, children are immature. They have a lot of learning, a lot of growing to do, a lot of mistakes to make. So we should glean many insights from the activities of the early church, but we shouldn't always lift them up as the normative pattern for how we always uh, govern our lives. The question, what are the people doing in this passage, should, should always be subordinate to what is God doing in this passage? What is Christ doing in this passage? In Acts, this is especially true where we have what I've described in the past sermons as an ongoing account of the heavenly ministry of King Jesus on earth as he expands his kingdom as he promised. Um, So we should be asking, what is King Jesus doing here in, in these verses to advance his reign in the earth? And I think in the same way, maybe in a similar way, that a new king would begin his, his reign by establishing his court. Or as a president, first thing he does is, is get those people who will be around him, his cabinet. Um, Jesus, really here, he's establishing in this passage his group of ambassadors, those people who will form the core group of this new community that is the New Testament church. So before the promised Holy Spirit arrives, he's setting his house in order. He, he's preparing them for the task ahead. And this passage is important for us because it gives us a window into the building of the foundation upon which we build our lives as Christians. We tend to think we can do it alone. We create many kingdoms based on our own understandings. And, and the error of our first mother resides in our DNA. We decide for ourselves what we think is good. We build our lives on our own foundations. But here we have the very beginnings of the foundation of the church itself, which is the same thing that we build upon. So last Sunday we looked at the ascension of Jesus, the the coronation of the son of David, and that two men clothed in white came to the disciples who were staring up into heaven and said basically, let's go ahead and reshift our focus. While we wait on his coming, there's, there's things to do. 
This passage begins with their obedience to Jesus. It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, maybe you've heard the story of uh, Hachiko, I think it's pronounced, the, the dog. I think they made a popular movie in in an American setting. But um, this dog's owner lived in Japan. He was a a teacher of agriculture at the university. He would go away on the train, and the dog would come to meet him at the train station when he would return every day. His his, uh, owner was teaching, and he just fell over dead, had a massive brain aneurysm. But the dog kept coming back to the train station every day at the right time for nine years. Now, I think if I were one of the apostles, I would just want to sit on top of the Mountain of Olives and wait for him to come back. (laughs) But they didn't. They obeyed their master because what did their master command them to do? Go to Jerusalem. Wait for the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. So they descended from the Mount of Olives, I I expect reluctantly. But it, it suggests that they understood that the master's physical absence didn't mean he wasn't still present. His command still carried weight. So dutifully they left the Mount of Olives. They traveled uh, the Sabbath day's journey, which was probably about three quarters of a mile. Generally, uh, the Sabbath day's journey was about the diameter of the town you lived in, two two thousand meters, or in this case, probably about three quarters of a mile. Not that it was the Sabbath; that's a measure of, of distance. They traveled down, and it says in verse thirteen. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And notice how careful Luke is. to He doesn't just say the apostles. He lists each of their names. He's careful to list their names. And there's only eleven. One is missing. Judas is missing. And it's important for Luke, not just for historical accuracy to give us their names, but but that these are the men who have been called and tasked and assembled together for the task of laying the foundation of being Christ's apostles, of being his witnesses to the resurrection. If you recall the the bejeweled foundation of the new, new Jerusalem in Revelation, The names of the twelve apostles are written on the foundation. This is the foundation. And also in Ephesians 2, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And then in Ephesians 4, he says he gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists, pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He gave the apostles for us. That means the men that he names here, Philip, Bartholomew, some of the more abstract ones, like, I don't know much about Bartholomew, but he's an apostle for me. He served in that office for me. So it's not as though the early church had the office of apostle and we don't. Now, we don't have apostles today because they served, they fulfilled that office already for us. They are our apostles. Now in verse 14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Luke gives us three details about the apostolic band here. First is that they were united. They were with one accord praying. 
And it seems, you know, they had diverse backgrounds. Fisherman, Matthew was a tax collector. They had extremely different personalities. You think of a boisterous, loud Peter and the young, sort of more subtle, loving John. And yet here they are being gathered together to pray, to seek the Lord. In the absence of a head, uh, the brain being the hub of, of, of our, of our uh, nervous system, the, the body will, will go haywire. As soon as the head is removed, it will go haywire and it will fizzle out and it will die. And, and, and that's what Gamaliel, the um, Pharisee, says only a few chapters from now. He says there have been movements with, with leaders, but their leaders died and the movements fizzled. The head was removed and it was over with. But somehow these men, Jesus has gone into heaven and, and these men are being drawn together in the absence of their head because in truth, their head was neither absent nor dead. He was still living and reigning and gathering them together. The second detail about the apostolic band is, is that they were devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Uh, I, I think... A lot of people would, if they caught wind, they understood, okay, we're going to try to start a a movement, a new community here. Okay, uh, we're going to start fundraising. We're going to start nailing down logistics. Let's write some books. Let's get a website up and hire a a charismatic youth leader, right? We need to get people together. It says they were devoted to prayer. Supposedly Martin Luther, and this may be more of a quote of Spurgeon's uh, interpretation of Luther, but um, upon being asked by a friend one time what his plans were the following day, Luther said, Work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's a different mindset than I have. I have so much to do that I shall spend three hours in prayer. Now, we don't know what they were praying about. Uh, perhaps it was the, the commission ahead or a prayer for wisdom in what was surely a confusing and painful time. And it, it, Luke says they were devoting themselves to prayer. So it was, I'm sure it was many things. Perhaps they were simply praying the scriptures as worship to their ascended king. But I like what Derek Thomas had to say about this. He, he said, It is always God's method to drive us into a corner to pray for the very blessings He intends to give us. Isn't that good? It is always God's method to drive us into a corner to pray for the very blessings He intends to give us. Because so I think one of the things they had to have been pleading for is the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. They knew He was coming. Send Him, Lord Jesus. I mean, no revival in history has ever come about without there first having been a revival in prayer. So why, why wouldn't that be true for the, the greatest of all revivals, Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit and power? So I have to think they were praying for the promised Holy Spirit. This is a reminder to us to pray. And I would plead with you to pray. Pray for me. You know, Sunday mornings as you're driving in that the Word would have effect by the power of the Holy Spirit or as you gather in your community groups together or by yourself uh, you know pray for your friends with with illnesses but also pray that God's elect would be brought in 
that those brothers and sisters, those people who are our friends, who seem to be carelessly wandering toward a precipice of, of false doctrine, that they would be corralled and brought back and God would protect the next generation. Pray that God would stir your own heart and soul. Pray that he would move you to prayer. And that, I think that's the prayer I need to pray the most, is make me a prayerful man. Prayer is hard. I find it to be one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. But it is powerful. If you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to serve in the kingdom of God, become a prayer. Be a prayer. Now, the third thing that Luke tells us about this apostolic band is that they were accompanied by the women and Jesus' family, Mary and his brothers. Now, we don't know about Joseph. Many people suggest that he, he had died somewhere, even maybe b- before Jesus' earthly ministry, because he's nowhere mentioned. Maybe, maybe he was resentful of, <laughs> of the strange way his life worked out, and he turned away, but maybe he died. I don't, I don't know. But his brother and his mother's mother was were there. Now Jesus, in, in the Gospels, in Luke, he was very clear about who he perceives his real family to be. Um, his mother and brothers began to kind of think he was going a little nuts. <laughs> they went out to him to, to bring him back, and, and people said, you know, your mother and your brothers are outside, and this is what he said. He said, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And now his mother and brothers were those people. His family had become his family. That's amazing. You know, James and Jude, the the writers in the New Testament, were the half-brothers of Jesus, and they opened their epistles. James, the servant, the slave, doulos, the slave of Jesus. Jude, a slave of Jesus. Their, Their brother had become their Lord. Luke continues here, at some point in the interim days between the Ascension and Pentecost, it seems Peter is struck with this realization. Perhaps it was during their prayer time, he came across a certain scripture that we'll read, or perhaps the betrayal of Judas had just been weighing on him. Uh, Whatever the case, he stands up and he addresses the group in verses 15 um, through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle And all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. I want to draw your attention here to a shift in Peter between the Gospels and Acts. Um, In the Gospels, Peter, he's so headstrong. He's always kind of going on his own program. Like He thinks he gets the program, but he doesn't quite get the program. He's always going on his own steam. He's the first one to call Jesus the Christ. 
And then a few verses later, Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, because he doesn't understand. And we all know well what Jesus said to Peter, the terrifying notion. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, which is about his denial. But I wonder how well we know the next sentence in the verse. I I wonder, in fact, at what point Peter recalled the next sentence. Satan, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You recall that part? I don't. I didn't remember that part. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is placing on him a task. The Protestants get a little nervous. Jesus did not elect Peter to be the Pope. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> But he did seem to single him out as kind of the leader of the apostolic band. And you notice in this passage the change in his leadership style. Primarily, he seems to be thinking through more carefully and applying the scriptures to the situations at hand. Headstrong, self-willed Peter notices that there's something off about having only 11 apostles. And so he's compelled by the scriptures to find a solution. Now... What's wrong with 11 apostles? Um, first, we shouldn't underestimate just the gravity and the pain of, of Judas's betrayal. One of the, the 12, the, the central men in Jesus' ministry. Can you imagine? Verse 17, it says, He was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Secondly, I don't know how obvious it was to them at the time, but it's pretty clear as Christ set up his new global community that the 12 apostles share a typological significance to the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a relationship there. Third, I think most importantly, Peter notices something in the scriptures. The scriptures compel him to the conclusion we need to elect a replacement for Judas. He says in 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, before Peter, in the the passage here, before he quotes the scriptures, I believe it's Luke. I don't think Peter's talking here. I think Luke interjects a parenthetical comment about the fate of Judas. For the sake of the reader, all the people present would have known what happened to Judas. Um, he says that he, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldamah, that is, field of blood. Now we should pause here briefly and clear up a couple of possible perceived inconsistencies with the gospel account. Uh, we know from Matthew's account that Judas was racked with guilt and he actually went and threw the silver down on the floor of the temple. And then he went away and committed suicide by hanging himself. So it seems a little different. But harmonizing the two accounts, Judas seemed to have purchased the field indirectly. We know that the, philo- uh, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, went and purchased the field with his, it was his money, his reward. So I think that's how we can reconcile that. It was still his, his money, the blood money. 
And as to the manner of his death, I mean, I'll leave the details to your own imagination, but you can see how uh, perhaps a violent hanging or or just decomposition would result in him falling headlong and his bowels gushing out into the field. Now, why does Luke interject these gory details at this moment? I I think it relates to the first scripture that Peter quotes, really to both of them. Um, And we'll read what he says here. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So that first reference, there's two here, quotes. The first reference is from Psalm 69. And as we know from Michael's Sunday School class, the Psalms are meant to represent the experience of all God's people, and especially the King. And so Jesus, in whom are the fulfillment of all the experiences of God's people, experienced these uh, kinds of sufferings and betrayals in a more pointed and profound way. And this is a psalm, Psalm 69, a crying out to God for salvation from those who reproach the king, who reproach the people of God. And the part that Peter references is a call for God's wrath to be poured out on the people who afflict the king. So Psalm 69, 24 through 28, the psalmist David cries out, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger take over them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. So that's the part Peter recalls, brings to mind. And he changes to the first person applying it to Judas. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add them to the pun- add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So this is what Peter has in mind with regard to Judas. I think Luke provides those gory details of Judas' death to to punctuate the desolation of Judas's camp. This this is happening to him. He was indeed blotted out of the book of the living. He was not enrolled among the righteous. The second psalm, Psalm 109, um, again, this is a psalm, a, a, a cry for justice, and it's largely imprecatory, calling down wrath on the enemies of the king and the people of God. Psalm 109, 8 through 12. Uh, may his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. So that's the second one that Peter calls to mind about about Judah specifically. Another may take his office. So there is no perpetual principle that there has to be twelve apostles at all times. Um, when James is murdered a few chapters from now, there's no election to, to get a new guy in, in office. It is actually Judas's apostasy rather than his death that, that requires a replacement. And actually, his, the replacement is also part of his humiliation. He who, who had received the highest calling the, in the court of the, the king of heaven has now been cast off and another person is going to take his place. 
Now we glean a couple of important truths about our apostles from this passage. The first is that the position is called an office. And I think we can get a little nervous sometimes about formal church government and structure because the body of Christ is, is an organic institution. That is to say, it's a living, breathing organism. It's a body. It's the bride of Christ. But it is also designed to be an institution. There, there is a formal government structure, na- namely a monarchy. <laughs> Jesus Christ is king. But there are also officers appointed by Jesus. The apostles are called officers here. Elders, even in in the New Testament, are called officers. Deacons alongside them are officers. So we should be obedient to, but also delighted to live within the structure that Jesus has put within his kingdom, within his church. A body, an organic, beautiful body, without a skeletal structure is is limp. It's useless. It needs structure. The second thing we see here about our, our apostles is the qualifications. The qualifications for election to the position were that they had to be men who were with Jesus for the whole of his ministry, and they were to be a, a witness to the resurrection. So they had to see the resurrected Christ. Paul, we'll talk about more in the future. Paul was um, something of an an anomaly here. I think he was a unique in his apostleship, um, directed specifically at the Gentile missions work, but also confirmed by the other apostles, as we saw when we went through Galatians. Needless to say, there's no one today that either meets those requirements or is able to access the original apostles for affirmation. So there are no... New apostles today. Now, finally, here we see the wisdom of the apostles and the assembly as Christ gave it to them. We see once again that the king is working in his church by his chosen means, specifically the means of word and prayer. So, in verses 23 through 26, and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see here the the use of lots, Uh, and it's not kind of a blind chance, flip a coin decision making. Uh, Instead, first of all, Peter takes leadership. They use wisdom to outline the qualifications of the men who who would be able to serve as, as apostles. Then they narrow it down to two men, and then they they pray, it says they pray. They lean heavily upon the omniscience and foreordination of God. It says they prayed that, that God knows the hearts of these men and who should take the place. Prayer is at the center once again. And then they leave the final decision in God's providence in the selection of these two men. And, and it's interesting, <laughs> make of this what, what you will, but there's no instance of a comment about God's people using lots to discern his will after Pentecost. 
the spirit-indwelt people of God have much to lean upon in making decisions before the Lord. We we have the fullness of the written revelation of God now. We have spirit-empowered wisdom to illumine the word to us, to, to discern, to make good decisions, to discern good from evil. And we have the Spirit-empowered family of God surrounding us for advice, for wise counsel. And we have 24 hours a day in which we may pray. It's interesting. Matthias is never mentioned again in Scripture. But he fulfills this important role, important role of apostleship. Now the point I want to drive home as we close is that here in this passage, uh, Jesus is building his house he, on the original foundation. He's, he's putting down the original foundation of the New Testament church. And he's using the same tools he uses now. Namely, the word and prayer. Simple tools to construct God's house. Which makes sense for us as, as weak, sinful people that, that our role in the kingdom is to seek Christ, to seek His wisdom and knowledge. And here in this passage, King Jesus compels His people to come together, united and devoted in prayer, searching the Scriptures for wisdom. And so I want to close with, I think, a a really um, powerful, related cross-reference from this Apostle Peter that we read about today, from the epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter in chapter 2. And I think you will see how it connects. So, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen.